I want to tell you about two brothers, Dylan and Cole Glepke, who impacted a small group of friends and family members in Nielsville, Wisconsin. May 7th, 2020 marks the 20th anniversary of their deaths. They were killed by a drunk driver after prom along with two of their friends, Luella Blackdeer and Danny Riddle. To be clear, death isn't a simple subject, and it's really not that easy to talk about. In fact, even after 20 years, their deaths show us how complex everything can still be. Amber, Dylan and Cole's older sister, still finds herself processing their deaths. Like, so for instance, when you text me the first time about it, like, I cried all weekend because it, like, made me look in. I, like, want to speak from my heart. I, like, want to say how I feel. But it's still, it's, like, 20 years later. Things should be better, but they're just kind of not. When I really look, like, when I was texting you, I was, like, bawling my eyes out, like, how my heart still feels broken. Death is humbling in a terrible sort of way. It teaches you how to let go while holding on. I know, it's a strange dichotomy. And that's the most difficult part in the end. That behind a tragedy like this, they were teenagers who moved so many people in such a short amount of time, we forget how quickly they came into our lives. What their lives were about is more than a tragedy and prom night. It's like a story of Humpty Dumpty after no one could put him back together again. How does a family, a group of friends, and a community function after everything falls apart? Pam Kernan isn't like anyone else. She gets people. She knows what it's like to be poor, to face addiction, and to be looked down upon. It's one of the reasons why she's a social worker today for Clark County, Wisconsin. As she explains, there isn't a spot in the county where she hasn't lived. I went to school in Loyal, I went to school in Greenwood, I went to school in Thorpe, and I went to school in Nielsville. And so I was kind of a Clark County brat. I have a lot of friends and and, um, also step relatives. My mom uh, married someone from Nielsville. And so that's how we got over here. Pam moved around a lot as a child. She wasn't just isolated to Wisconsin. But my dad was from the West Coast. And so he is a Fort Peck tribal member. Of course, he he passed several years ago now, too. But um, when I wasn't growing up in Clark County, I was growing up on the reservation in Washington State, um, in the, on the Macaw Reservation in Nia Bay, um, in Tahola and Queets, the Quinault Reservations. Pam's Native heritage is a critical part of her personality. As a child, she experienced many of the issues found in the Native community. Neglect, poverty, alcoholism, abuse. These were parts of her childhood. But if you ever meet Pam, you wouldn't know this. She's a funny and outgoing person, and she makes people feel good about themselves. More importantly, she tries to make the best out of difficult situations. You know, we had some life sayings that said, you know, life is going to suck. And so if life sucks, you have the choice. You can let life suck the life out of you, or you can suck the life out of life. And so we decided that as family, that's how we were going to live, and we were going to suck the life out of life. Pam and part of this onto her kids, Amber, Dylan, and Cole. 
What she noticed right away about them is how much they reminded her of herself. Their personalities, their smiles, their outlooks on life, each one was a different aspect of herself. But Pam says, in retrospect, how she really wanted each of her children to be their own person. And having that belief that every person is individual and created as a gift, you know, for people's lives and to encourage and and walk along, um, that they were individuals. And, you know, one one of the things, strongest thing that I think about my faith that I liked was just having that knowledge that, you know, there's only one of you. And you have different gifts and abilities and strengths than you do and that you do and that we could celebrate all those gifts and abilities. As kids, Amber, Dylan, and Cole were a package deal. Amber was the older sister who was more like their mom, making their food, picking out their clothes, and keeping them out of trouble. And they all got along, and they managed to stay close even throughout high school. They would often hang out in the same places, go to the same concerts, and socialize with the same people. For Amber, being together gave them energy. There was a confidence that we had to be ourselves and to have fun doing it and to not care what people thought of us. And I would say that that was the same for them too. And I think that there was, at least for me, I can't speak for them, but for myself, I know that I drew so much confidence from them because I feel like we were different. I would agree with that. Like, And I feel like I've always felt different. And so for me, I gained a lot of confidence with my brothers. But like most siblings, they were really different people. As Pam points out, Dylan was unlike anyone the world would ever encounter. You know, I can't tell you if it was when he stuck the bean up his nose. <laughs> I tell you, you know, and then I panic and panic and then and then no more do I get one bean out of his nose. He decides he's going to stick another bean up there. <laughs> he always had you laughing. You know, he um he was always uh big, uh, mischievous. When he was little, he always loved to cook and stir and, you know, whatever he could put in the pot to stir, he would stir it up, you know. And uh, when he finally decided that he was going to start using uh, appliances, he made himself a, a grape shake with grapes and ice cream. He, he always was extra extroverted. Pam loved this about Dylan. She loved his willingness to be himself. He made people laugh. He was always the center of attention. At times, Dylan was a contrast to his older sister and younger brother. Cole was very introverted. For him, I think it was easier for him to stay stay in the background because Dylan was such an extrovert. And I will say that Amber was very introverted too. So Dylan always took the lead in, in everything that all three of them almost did. Nothing really changed about Dylan and Cole. As Amber remembers, their personalities became a constant thing. Like as soon as their personalities were developed, I guess, that I can remember when I was five, six years old, it seems like that they were true to those personalities up until the day they died. Like I I would say I didn't. The only thing I do notice is right before Cole died that he grew like freaking four inches. Like that was just like... That's the only change, but it wasn't his personality. It was his height. Like, they both, just before they passed, just got taller than me. 
Amber, Dylan, and Cole didn't grow up in Nielsville. Like Pam, they moved around Wisconsin. Soon after high school, Pam started her life as a mother when she married Dale Glepke. They had the kids together, all born within a five-year window. Soon after Cole's birth, Pam and Dale separated, and she married her current husband, Dan Kernan. They never had any kids. Dale remarried and had three children, who are still close with Amber to this day. Their journey back to Nielsville seems kind of contradictory. As Pam explains, the family moved to the Manitowoc area, the village of Valders to be specific, for a simple reason. I really wanted to be close to some water, and we'd go up there and go um, salmon snagging. So doing the salmon snagging, we just decided we'd just move over there, and the kids like to fish too. Nielsville isn't known for salmon. You can buy it at the grocery store, but that's about it. For Pam and the kids, there was an opportunity after Dan's grandparents passed away during the mid-90s. The reason we came back is my husband, and while we were over there, I got married to Dan. Um, and then Dan's grandparents passed away. So when his parent grandparents passed away, they they were selling the farm. And Dan and I and the kids had come over here off and on and stayed with grandma and, you know, holidays and during the summer and helped with the hang and stuff like that. But when they both passed, um, we decided that we wanted to sell our house and, and buy the farm. If you add up these facts, the Glepke should have fit right into Nielsville. I mean, Amber, Dylan, and Cole covered all the prerequisites. They lived on a farm, they liked fishing, camping, and being outdoors in general. When they entered school in 1996, Amber in 10th grade, Dylan in 8th grade, and Cole in 7th grade, they were like three mystic aliens from another planet. They weren't like other kids at school, and students noticed this right away. Blake Teschner, who had homeroom with Cole, picked up on this. When you first show up to school, you go to your homeroom class to get your everything lined up. And we had Mr. Moret, who was the art teacher. He picked apart those that stood out a little different, those ones that, you know, for being the art teacher, you think he would have uh, embraced those that were just a little bit different. Um, but I do remember, and I wrote it on this piece of paper, um, that first day of school, Dylan or Cole had a Valder's AA shirt on. Um, AA, and we're in seventh grade, we're 12 years old. Um, I obviously, I knew what AA was, and I, I just remember that, I don't know if I thought to myself, hey, this... This is a cool dude, but I don't know. We clicked. Um, obviously, we both were just a little, a little different. You could tell, you know, maybe uh, rebellious, you know. And at, at 12 years old, how rebellious can you be? You know, you're just arrogant and cocky to your teacher, really. So I think that's where Mr. Moret really came down on us. But like I said, with you know, the, the first time I met Cole, you know, just that that shirt, you know, who's wearing a an AA shirt, you know, in middle school. It was more than just a t-shirt. Vaughn, who quickly became friends with Dylan, took to him instantly. Like Blake, Vaughn felt different. She didn't feel like the other kids in school. And in 1996, being different in small town Wisconsin could feel like a death sentence. And if you didn't drive a truck or wear the right clothes, you became an easy target, as if you encouraged other kids to make fun of you. Dylan gave Vaughn a pass to, well, be somebody else. Meeting him during my formative years, he was kind of a person that everything about him, the way he dressed and carried himself and acted, kind of spoke to me. Like, he was on the outside who I was on the inside. Like, just being, like, this artistic, almost like, I had a freak flag, but mine was inside. And, like, when he came with his spiked collar and 
just being that mystical little weird alien, I was like, that is so cool that he can show that on the outside. Like I want to hanging out with him allowed me to become more of like that letting my individuality show. All of a sudden it was like, then there were two of us. This phenomenon wasn't limited to just Dylan and Cole. Amber was as much as their older sister, as well as their co-conspirator. Daisy Linville noticed that Amber was just as special as her brothers, and quickly integrated herself into the Glepke household. I don't know, I remember seeing this, like, really cool girl across the sanctuary, like, oh my god, who is that awesome girl? She's like a punk rocker and has all this flashy clothes and has her hair up in these pigtails, and oh my god, nobody here dresses like that, and... I knew I had to meet her, so we became best friends almost instantly. I regrettably even ended up ignoring all of my other friends and my sister just so I could be with Amber all the time, and and I'm thankful for that, but at the same time I feel bad because I neglected all my other friends, so yeah. You've probably heard this before. New kids come to town, people get excited, and then they just slowly kind of melt into the background. With the Glepkis, they didn't follow this path. They seemed to contradict themselves. These kids came from a working class, Christian background and had roots in the county. They should have assimilated, but they didn't. They were like a punk rock circus act, complete with dyed hair, studded collars, loud music, skateboard sessions, late night road trips, and the list goes on. All of this before many of us could even drive. Leah Johnson, my older sister and close friends with Vaughn, says that was their appeal. I think it was this ridiculous charisma that nobody in our town had. You know, we we did. We grew up in such a small area and everyone knew everyone else. And the goal, especially in middle school in a small town, your goal is just to fit in. And that was something that they didn't do. They didn't even try to fit in. And I think that's what kind of brought people in is that, you know, in a time where you're just so desperate to be like everyone else, they weren't at all, and they were so happy about it. I think no matter where you grow up, to see someone at that age be so comfortable with themselves, you don't see that a lot. Because all three of them, I mean, Amber included, they were just so effortless in their confidence, and they just naturally people gravitated towards them because of that. To put their personalities into perspective, it's like explaining a fantasy. I mean, it doesn't seem true if you weren't there. Even as Fawn recounts one day at school, it's a snapshot into Dylan's everyday life. He got a pair of green Doc Martin boots. And like I said, because he loved to splurge, like he went through a period where he would only buy t-shirts from The Gap. He bought those t-shirts from The Gap because, well, they're from The Gap and they're comfortable and they're cool. And look at me, I have t-shirts from The Gap. But because at the time there was a commercial on, the people on the commercial would sing, they call me Mellow Yellow. So he like bought those shirts so that he could walk down the hallway and sing that song. But the Doc Martin boots during art class, like this is another one of the stories, like who does this? But like he jumped up onto the table and saying Nancy Sinatra's These Boots Are Made For Walking. As a like, 16-year-old boy, you know, in an art class, he's just like, I don't give a fuck. I'm going like, to dance on the art table like in front of everyone, in front of all the football players, in front of everyone that you know normally 
you don't want to embarrass yourself in front of. He's just like, check out my boots. Again, this wasn't an isolated event. This was Dylan's life. Everyone who knew him has their own story. Even when Daisy met Dylan, she knew that he wasn't like anyone else. Um, Amber invited me to go camping just a few short weeks, I think, after they arrived. I think that's when I first met Dylan and Cole was at the campsite in Hatfield in Arbutus. And Dylan said, pleased to meet you. And he lifted me up by my legs and threw me over his shoulder and like ran across a parking lot. And I was like, who in the hell is this awesome guy? This is this is cool. Like, I've never had anybody pick me up and throw me over their shoulders before. We were around the campsite and he said, hey, I'm going to go next door and pick on um, trick these these drunk people next to us. So he went over and he um, was like, hey, hello, folks. We got to shut the party down now. It's time to put out the fire, and he's gotten some gotten some complaints tonight that it's too noisy and rowdy over here. And he stands up on a chair and just pisses on these people's fire, their campfire, and they were amused by it. And we were, like, cracking up, like, oh, my God. Then, at the same time, interacting with Cole wasn't the same as interacting with Dylan. In many ways, they balanced each other out. It was more than Dylan was loud and Cole was quiet. As Fawn and Leah remember, they almost made a perfect couple. And Cole took a long time to open up to people. Like, he was very timid. His sense of humor was completely different than Dylan's. Um, He was more of like a a sit there and observe and take everything in. And he would really only open up to you if you you showed him it was okay to... He wasn't all out there like Dylan was. Dylan was like, hey, I'm Dylan. I'm an open book. You know, I like this, I like this, hang out with me. And Cole was, Cole made you work for his friendship a little more. Cole was like the coolest kid ever. Even though he was one of your friends, I always really liked him. Because he was a a good guy. And he was just, he was quiet. But not quiet for the sake of shyness. I think there was a lot going on in Cole's head. That mystery around Cole really worked into Dylan's persona. It's like they were each other's foil, where one trait contrasts another trait, which contrasts another, until you realize Dylan and Cole were two sides of the same coin. And this isn't uncommon with brothers. They grew up together, so having slight differences yet being relatable isn't a new concept. In fact, it's kind of expected. Even for their differences, they tried to be the best versions of themselves for their friends. And that's how they really held everyone together. Not too long after the Glepkis moved to Nielsville, Denise Vensky became friends with Dylan and Cole. She was in Dylan's grade and friends with Leah and Fawn, too. And she isn't a stranger to tragedy. During her freshman year of high school, Denise was attacked by her older brother's dogs. This wasn't a simple bite on the ankle. They tore a large portion of her scalp off. Denise made it to the emergency room, luckily. Even here, it was far from over. She was in critical condition. Surgeons had to remove large portions of her thigh and arms to rebuild her scalp. Leah and I went with a group of people to visit her that night. It was the first time we saw one of our friends in the ICU. The surgeons were happy with their work and that Denise would survive. But they weren't Denise. She was 14 and had numerous surgeries and therapy sessions ahead of her. When Denise returned to school, she began to see how caring the Glefkis were. 
the high school guidance counselor. He kind of had like everyone meet um, and kind of talk about things before I came back to school. And everyone wrote me questions um, in my class about, you know, what I was going through and how I, you know, felt and things. And I'll never forget Dylan's. I still have it to this day. It said, his only question was, do you love me as much as I love you? And I just started bawling when I saw that because that was so him. Like it it wasn't, he didn't care physically what you looked like, what your appearance was. It was just who you are. And he was so accepting of everyone. And it didn't stop with the letter. Dylan and Cole went out of their ways to show Denise how great she was. It continued throughout high school. Dylan and I had this thing where we would pick daisies and put them on each other's car, but we would never tell the other person about it. And it was like, it was like he he would know when I wasn't feeling good or something was going on, even if I didn't tell him. And I'd, I'd leave after school and I'd see a daisy on my car and it totally changed my day. Like, that was him. Like, he did have like that sixth sense for people. The feeling to be around them is something that is almost impossible to explain. I was always comfortable and I never felt like anything I said was going to be judged by them. Like they were just always very honest, but it's hard. It's so hard. Dylan and Cole knew how to make people feel good. They were great at it. Despite this, they weren't loved by everybody. We're talking about a core group of people, maybe six to ten friends in a school of 400 students. This is less than half a percent. And, being a part of a minority, they really weren't accepted by everybody. Again, Blake. I remember getting a ride to uh, Wallace Woodstock from Dylan once, and I think it was one of his classmates also worked there that, you know, he was like, oh, I can't believe you're, you're hanging out with him. He's such a, you know, and talking smack. But I remember... defending him or sticking up for him because uh you know I like that you know he didn't he didn't have to hide anything he was just this is who I am and um I'm going to speak my mind as Vaughn remembers stuff like this at school just didn't matter we still were a very small small group of people and Dylan did get a lot of verbal abuse and just you know, pick on, picked on, but since we had each other, it just, it didn't matter anymore. But this wasn't limited to just the school. The Glepkis got harassed in a lot of places, and we're not talking about odd looks and off-the-cuff remarks. They were kicked out of places for being themselves. Again, Amber. We loved being outdoors, like, even though we were kind of like alternative-looking kids, we really liked to be outside, and so we loved camping, And so we went to go camping one time. We were all like teenagers and a whole bunch of grown men came out and said, like, very intimidating, like, like, we don't want your kind here. I guess when you're not like fully accepted, it doesn't feel good. But on the same hand, like we just like laughed at it and went to the campsite next door and like, honestly, like had a blast. They did make everything a blast. And that's what people got when they were with them. No matter how bad you felt, they would make you feel better, and they were good at it. And it was a big part of Pam's plan in the end. As she explains, she wanted her kids to open the house to everybody. Probably went a lot further had I known some of the situations that some of the kids were in that they were bringing home. But I always knew that 
kids had circumstances like that. Um, Growing up on the reservation, it was very, very poor. I grew up very poor. Um, I had great families around me that I, I guess I learned that not everything looks like people present it. And I think just being able to have some intuition about things and um, knowing that, you know, sometimes you can have a smile on your face, but you still need a hug. You still need to know that you're loved. I tried to pass that on to them. And I think they did that very well. They pulled people in. And I always had the idea that if my kids are going to somebody else's house that I don't know where they're at, that they may be going into the lion's den. And so I decided that I was going to make my home something that would be warm and wonderful and that my kids would want to be there and then their friends would come and I'd know exactly what was going on with my kids. Merry Christmas, honey. You didn't guess. Oh, a fishing pole. Oh. <laughs> and you did anyone. Okay, Dylan. I don't know. Um, oh, awesome. Oh, that's not just a telescope. That's a to see up to the stars telescope. <laughs> Yeah, it's easy to get the telescope on The 1999-2000 school year started like any other. Amber graduated the year prior, Dylan started 11th grade, and Cole finally started high school after being held back a year. As much as we want to glamorize our pasts, Dylan and Cole weren't good students. They barely completed their homework, and they skipped class often. In fact, Dylan and Cole would routinely skip school to go to the mall or get Chinese food and we were more than willing to go along. It was during this time Dylan struck up an ongoing conversation with Mr. Smith, our school counselor. In 2000, Dylan's locker was right outside my office door. So I saw Dylan twice a day, every day, most days, that you know he would come to his locker and we would exchange salutations and greetings and, you know, it's, huh, new bowling shirt. Yeah, 25 cents, uh, 10. <laughs> that was kind of how our year went when he was a junior. It was just like every day it was the same thing. He had a different bowling shirt on and, again, traveled to the beat of a different drummer, which is, hey, that's everybody's finding themselves. Mr. Smith traveled to the beat of a different drum himself. He became a school counselor during the 70s, when the profession was still under the guidance counselor model, you know, when they guided you into college or a career. For Mr. Smith, he genuinely cared about his students. He had become an EMT to help out with sprained ankles and other injuries during the basketball season. His office was a safe space for students who needed time to de-escalate. He became an advocate for Denise. In fact, he was with us the night we visited Denise after her accident and he would visit her during therapy sessions throughout high school. To this day, they still keep in contact. Besides the conversations with Mr. Smith, it was a rather normal year for us. We'd hang out at Dylan and Cole's house, go to Fawn's house, drive an hour to another city, hike Wildcat Mound, skate a friend's halfpipe, or just walk around town. As the year progressed, Dylan and Cole grew closer not only as brothers, but also as friends. 
and at times, Dylan and Cole were so different from each other, it seemed like they would never find a common ground. But the big brother, little brother complex had finally blown over. Again, Leah. Cole was more quiet about things, and Dylan was just much more loud about things. But they shared that same, same quirk. And I think that's kind of what made them such good friends. Because they really, even though, you know, they were brothers, they were really good friends. As summer break got closer, so did prom. For Denise, Fawn, Dylan, and Leah, it was their junior prom, the year their graduating class held prom court. Although they weren't on court, they were still going to go. Denise was going with Cole, Fawn was dating Blake, Dylan was going to take her friend Luella, and Leah went with some of her other friends. For the rest of us who didn't go, we went to the next town over and skated until the cops kicked us out. The day before prom, Mr. Smith chatted with Dylan. The night before prom, like again, I went out outside my office and he was at his locker and I said, I said, you be careful out there this weekend. I said, there's a lot of crazies out there. And he said, I'm always careful. He says, I'm responsible for people's lives. And on Saturday, May 6th, just before prom started, everyone went to Fawn's house to get ready. Since she was the only friend who lived in Nielsville, it was a natural meeting spot. As prom got closer, Fawn became apprehensive. We were getting ready for prom, and I told Denise, like all of a sudden I got really hot and anxious and was like, I don't want to go to prom. She's like, why? I said, something really bad is going to happen, and I don't want to go. Like, I couldn't even eat. I couldn't drink. Like, the whole night, I was just anxious. And Blake even said to me, he was like, Denise said you didn't want to come to prom. What's going on? And I said, I just have this horrible feeling. Fawn wasn't the only person feeling uneasy. Pam and Dan left the day before, so Pam could lead a diabetes workshop for members of the Ho-Chunk Nation. She wanted to speak to Dylan and Cole before they went to prom. Yeah, and so I went that night before, and I had a premonition, and I I was like, oh my gosh, okay. So I called back home, and I wanted to talk to the boys, but they had already left. So I talked to Amber, and I said, Amber, I have this premonition that an earthquake is going to come, but you and I are going to be standing afterwards. And I had no idea what it was related to at all, but it was a premonition. 20 years ago, prom was a community event in Nielsville. There was maybe 400 kids in high school and less than half of them went to prom. There was maybe 2,600 people in Nielsville and more than half of them watched prom, or it seemed that way. It was more than balloons, streamers, and loud music. There were neighbors, siblings, and grandparents there too, all of them wanting to take a picture or steal a moment of your time. Outside of Nielsville's summer festival or the county fair, it was one of the biggest events of the year. A lot of people forget, but prom was really great that year. Prom was perfect. Like, everything was perfect. We had we had such a great evening, Cole and I did. I don't know how, but Cole and I were, like, the lead of the prom after the prom court. Totally messed it up. <laughs> and, and we laughed so hard. It was hilarious. Um, so then after that, we, like, forced someone else to be in front of us. We're like, we don't know what we're doing. A lot of people had a bad feeling about that night. Like there was something bad that was going to happen. 
I didn't have that. Cole and I had so much fun and we were hanging out with Blake and Crystal and we were like hanging out with Georgette and we were laughing so much. I remember how my how bad my belly hurt from laughing because Dylan was just telling the most ridiculous jokes and stories that I don't even know if they were real or not, but they were hilarious. Um, it was genuine happiness. Um, but if I could live in that moment for the rest of my life, I would ju- uh, I don't I look back on it and smile and it was it was one of the favorite moments of my life honestly after the grand march kids started to leave some of them went to a friend's house some of them went to after parties and some of them went to hotels since Dylan Luella Blake Fong Cole and Denise came as a group they decided to leave as one But Denise ran into a neighbor as she left. A girl that I knew, Liz Kuhn, was at prom. And I don't know why, because she was quite a bit older. And um, she just, like, came there and she's like, I don't want you driving. And I was like, that's weird. Like, I talked to her, but it wasn't like we were really close friends. I'm like, okay, well, then I don't have to drive. I'm good with this. Everyone got into a car. Fawn and Blake got into theirs and went with some friends to Black River Falls. Dylan, Cole, Luella, and her boyfriend Danny, they got into Dylan's car. And Denise hopped in with Liz. They heard about a party in Hatfield, Wisconsin. And like that, everyone went their way. Mr. Smith continued his work as an EMT. On Sunday, May 7th, he got a call around 3 a.m. There had been a car crash south of town near the intersection of Highway 73. He put down the phone, put on his uniform, and made his way to the site. Your worst nightmare? I was on with two young EMTs. I mean young, they were under 21 each. I hadn't seen anything like this. And when we rolled up on scene, The fire department had the vehicles fire put out and basically the the vehicles were there and I rolled up probably about from here to the wall away and uh, I got out of the vehicle and I asked them to stay in the vehicle. I said, you don't have to, but I said, I'm just asking you to stay in the vehicle because you don't need to see this. I was the person who the coroner came up and gave me a license and told said who the car was registered to and I said he's the driver and I said his brother is the other person in the front seat they didn't ask me to look in the back seat and I'm glad I didn't after Dylan and Cole were identified the authorities dispersed they made their way north to the Klepke's house Amber woke up to a knocking at the door she was still alone and when I woke up I realized that Dylan and Cole were not home I went downstairs and um, there was two gentlemen there that said they were police officers and they said that there was an accident and that Dylan and Cole had died. And I like still, it's like so crazy, like of a feeling like, it's like I didn't realize like that I was like made of bricks on the inside and like that my body was like a skeleton of it. And 
I just felt my inside like crumble to the ground. And in that moment, I could have let my body kind of fall with it. And, and then a surreal life kind of began. Pam was still at the conference. Morning activities were about to start when a colleague pulled her aside. A man wanted to speak to her. She didn't know he was a police officer. All of a sudden, a cop, uh, I don't know if they called or if they came in and asked for me, I don't know. Somebody called me out. So I went outside by myself, by this huge, beautiful tree. The The police officer said, um, I was all by myself. He said, you, you know, your son's died in an accident. And it didn't hit me, so I just stood there. He got in his car, he left, and then I became weak. I fell on the ground and I could not get up. And I really don't remember anything until somebody put a packet of tobacco in my hand. And then she told me, Brenda was her name, she told me that's that's when I had the strength to stand up. News travels fast in Nielsville. And before 8 a.m., most people in town knew there was an accident. It was just a question of who it was. Now, it became a game of phone tag. Again, Leah. We had gotten a call, and mind you, this is before cell phones. Um, I think it was Phil Strunzi's mom had called to the hotel room, said that there was an accident. So that phone was being used. I went out to the front desk because I didn't know if Fawn and Denise were in the accident. I didn't know if you were in the accident. I didn't know who was in this accident. I had no idea. I just knew that it was four people. I got out to the front desk and I think I called dad. And I don't remember if it was you or dad who told me. I knew that you weren't in it. I still at that point didn't know if Fawn and Denise were involved. But I knew it was Dylan and Cole. And I dropped to my knees in the hotel lobby. And there was a housekeeper that helped me back to the room. And I let everybody know what happened. Just like that. Um, what went from being a night that we had all had so much fun changed. We all fell down and tried to put ourselves back together again and call someone, anyone, and see if they were alive. These were, to this day, some of the hardest phone calls to ever make. Again, Vaughn. I don't know how Amy Mortensen heard, but she's the one that eventually called me. And she said, did you hear about the accident? Well, I don't know who it all was, but I thought you should know it was Dylan and Cole. And I said, no, it wasn't because they had gotten ready for prom at my house. So their clothes and shoes and stuff were sitting right by the phone there, like right on the steps by the front door. And I said, no, it wasn't because their shoes are still here. Like my brain immediately like was like, I, don't, I can't hear what you're saying. Like that doesn't that's not right. I said, they, they have to come back because their their clothes are here. And then she's like, no fun. It was Dylan and Cole. And I just dropped the phone and I just threw up all over the dining room floor. After Fawn put down the phone, friends started to show up. Most of us had been there the night before, and we had no idea what was going to happen or who was going to show up next. 
A few hours went by, and more and more people started to show up at her house. It was more than friends, other students, family members, and neighbors stopped by. And then, Pam and Dan showed up. She pulled Fawn aside and began to cry. I was in such a, a fog. Emptiness. Like, I like I lost every... Like, I was lost. I was lost. Once my mind, you know, gripped the fact that they were actually gone, which didn't happen until that moment on the sidewalk when I saw Pam. Because my mind just was... I mean, people were, people were coming into my house... After Pam left, we followed her home. Again, Daisy. Everybody was just bawling their heads off all day long out at the farm. It was tragedy. It was utter tragedy. I don't know how else to describe it. Like, there was not a dry eye all day long. We just cried and cried and cried and cried, and we just sat around. There were kids from Nailsville just, like, came to the house and just sat, like, on the kitchen floor, just staring at the floor for, like, eight hours. Kids were numb. They didn't know what to do. Nobody knew what to do. We, like, sat around that farm and in that kitchen and that living room just staring at the walls all day. It was so terrible. Denise showed up with her friend Jeannie and met Amber in the front lawn. But I remember Amber was there, and I had no words. There was, like, nothing I could say to her. Um, And, of course, Jeannie was always very chatty, you know, and even Jeannie didn't have words. We just sat quietly together and cried and Amber was so strong like I think maybe she was in shock at that point um but we all just sat on their their lawn and and cried Amber was good at being strong she kept people together she was like her mom she had this space between her heart and her soul that kept people safe now she began to feel it slip away I think if I would have faced it all at once, I feel like I would have laid down and died. I don't know how to explain it any other way. Maybe it only makes sense for me. But like when Dylan and Cole died, it was like an emotional or a spiritual tragedy like that. No one can see what it does to you on the inside. Like if I was like in a car accident and both my arms had to be amputated, like you can see that. I, in so many ways, feel like something like that happened to me when they died. Like, there's just a part of me that's gone. And, like, I had to, like, learn how to live without them. And as Monday came, everything was different. School was empty. People flocked to the crash site. And on top of that, the national news showed up. The, the Monday after the accident, the 8th of May, I get to school at 6.30 in the morning and there's a truck from CBS sitting in the parking lot. Oh shit, that's not what we need right now. But I knew they were going to be there. And, and this was just the first of like four different networks that showed up to film and, and they said, well, we're going to be here at 9 o'clock and the next one's going to be here at 10 o'clock and the next one's going to be here at 11 o'clock and the next one will be here at noon. It was apparent that this accident was bigger than any of us. In a general sense, the entire community mourned. For a group of kids who weren't star athletes and who had been ridiculed, it was biting, if not cruelly ironic. But, as Mr. Smith reminds us, it's times like these where people put aside their differences and learn to come together. It was massive. You know, there was, a, I think, a real outpouring of... Uh, if you want to call it support for the families, 
And, and I think part of it, the the adult in the thing is that therefore, by the grace of God, therefore I go I, and that they were just so thankful that it wasn't their kid and so overwhelmed by it all. And it, it wasn't the fact that a student died. It was the fact that four students died. That many at one time, how, how do you cope? And we didn't know how to cope. Many of us hadn't experienced death before, or at least not the death of a close friend. As the funeral approached, Pam asked Fawn, Daisy, and myself to prepare eulogies. She tried to make it easy for us, encouraged us to dress as if it was a normal day, and speak from the heart. Even during times like these, she was still watching out for us. On Wednesday, May 10th, we went to the funeral, and we quickly realized this was a big deal. Daisy, whose dad was an usher, lost count after 700. Again, Denise. It was crazy. It was so many people. And I'd never seen that many people in that church. I didn't even know it could hold that many people. It was kind of, kind of overwhelming. Again, Leah. So many people. There were so many people. And I, I don't think that's something that you can even comprehend really at that age. You know, because a lot of times when you go to a funeral when you're young, a lot of people are there because they're obliged to go. I truly feel like for all four of those funerals, I don't think anybody was there because they felt obliged. They were there because there was a genuine connection. The extent, I mean, that the Believer's Church was so big. Man, that place was huge. And to think how packed that place was, knowing just how many people that they had touched... It's crazy to think about. I just, I don't know if then I really understood the full extent of it. As the funeral started, Amber began to cry. Since Sunday, she'd been so focused on others that she could easily avoid the gravity of the situation. But it finally caught up to her, and she sat there with the rest of her family, and everyone watched as they broke down. And there wasn't anything we could do about it. We could go home, and everyone was there, But they didn't have this anymore. So we said our words, listened, and held on to whatever we could. The family asked some of their friends to share a few more thoughts about them. And so I'd like to ask Seth, Daisy, and Fawn to come up onto the platform with me. I never dreamed I would be doing this, not for these people. And I hope and pray I never have to do this ever again. But there is no way to read the future, and there is no way to go back and change the past, because I'm sure a lot of us would go back and change a lot of things we did. But this is no time for regrets. Throughout life, the term best friend is handed out to many people without much thought. You took me to the mall last week. You're my best friend. You let me wear your sweatshirt. Now you're my best friend. And I'm not saying it's wrong to have more than one, because best friends are wonderful things. And there is not a doubt in my mind Dylan Glebke was my best friend, and he still is. And I am very blessed that I spent every day with Dylan and Cole. I know they're happy now, and I know they will always be standing beside me, one on each side, along with Loella Black Deer and Danny Riddle. And for everyone else who truly knew these people, we're fortunate enough to know these people, um, and laugh with them and just be in their presence, they will always walk beside you too. In the months that followed, we acclimated back into our lives, or we tried the best we could. We finished the school year, went back to our jobs, and tried to feel normal again. But 
Grief works in complicated ways, and we noticed that everyone wasn't getting better. We were starting to disintegrate. Living life with Dylan, it was like this carefree, everything was positive, everything was fun. And then that happened, and it was almost like I'm never going to let myself get that close to anyone ever again because this hurts really bad. And, like, it was, like, friendship-wise, I never have made friends after that. There's a definitive – if you looked on the timeline of Fawn's life, there was Fawn before May 7th, 2000, and, like, a definitive, like, my personality afterwards and who I became afterwards because I changed after that. But I shut down for a long time after that. Like, I really um, had a hard time kind of putting myself back together. I think it was everyone dealt with it in their own way, but none of us really dealt with it at the moment. You know, we kind of tried to push forward and just be, I don't know if I ever really allowed myself to like be in the moment and be happy as much um, until I was much older. Um, I think it's just the age in itself. Um, You want to be independent. You don't want to admit that you're hurting and you don't want to admit that you want help. And sometimes you don't really understand that you need the help. And I think that's the point that I was at. I was going to take care of it myself. And talking about it made me hurt. And I didn't want that anymore. I didn't go. I didn't talk about it. I did things that were the exact opposite of talking about it. You know, I I think there was a lot more substances being used. Um, not as much drinking, but, you know, there was a lot of other things being used to numb the pain. Everything changes. As the next school year started, many familiar places were gone. Dylan and Cole weren't home. Fawn's mom remarried and moved out of town. Under these circumstances, a slow tension began to reach a breaking point. It became debilitating, and people began to notice, our classmates, our parents, our teachers. It was obvious. Mr. Smith started a support group for a small group of students, mainly family and friends, that met bi-weekly at school. After a few months, people stopped showing up. In the end, Luella's sisters and myself were the only ones that were still there. During this time, Pam tried desperately to keep us together. Part of, I think, why I tried to stay connected was I didn't want to lose you. Because when you go through this, you understand how fragile life really can be. And I wanted to make sure that you guys all had a boost, a boost up. That it wasn't going to define your life, but it was just going to be a a part, a good part of your life. And I didn't want to lose anybody else. And Pam's constant care eventually took a toll on her. As Pam recounts, she felt the pieces of herself falling apart. You go through some things in life where you don't have anything to give. And so I tried to stay with my full-on life philosophy for several months from May, June, July, August, September. October it hit me is when it it really hit me. Um, I looked outside 
the leaves started falling off the trees and I felt myself fall apart at that time. It was pieces. It literally was pieces. And so from October to the end of January the next year, um, I couldn't do anything. I literally could not. My husband took care of me and Amber, you know, they both took care of me. But um, there was there's a time when you have to just sit down and say, OK, I, I can't give anything. I have to now just try to survive this. Almost everything became survival for Pam, and it wasn't easy. She found herself breaking down in the grocery store or on her way to work. She would still be as positive as possible for us, but it began to wear on her even more. We tried in our own ways to help, calling her, meeting up at the house, being a part of holidays. And still, it would be years before we could vaguely comprehend what her and the rest of her family were going through. Trauma affects more people than you realize. Their deaths weren't limited to a small group of friends and family members. It would be wrong to say otherwise. It would be years before any of us knew the full extent. Today, as I talk to Mr. Smith, he opens up about how much this affected him. I did not cry openly before then. And uh, it took a long time to accept that. Because of this accident, I had to wind up and go through some counseling because of I would get up and it started in October afterwards and went through February when I finally told my wife, I said, I've got I've to seek out help. I've got to. It wasn't that it was nightmares or anything like that, but when I got up and came back to bed, that scene was all I could see. That was an eye-opening thing for me that I thought I was pretty tough, but I was pretty weak. And like Mr. Smith, in the years that followed, everyone tried to move on the best they could. To a certain extent, childhood was over, and many of us fast-tracked into adulthood. Leah and her boyfriend Troy married and had kids nearly a year after graduation. Fawn and Blake quickly followed. Amber, Daisy, and Denise followed after them. And for a moment, everyone started to mend their fences. They were married with children, had jobs, continued into college, and kept in contact with each other. Briefly, everything seemed to come together again. And then, in the same order they got married, one by one, each couple went through difficult divorces, and the fences they mended started to come undone. And a lot of us were dealing with trauma in our own way, asking questions like, why am I here and they're not? It's been five years, 10 years, I should be happy that I'm alive. Why do I feel this way? And this was especially difficult for Denise. She was one of the last people to see them alive and was supposed to be in the same car that night. Her guilt multiplied, and she kept reaching that breaking point we felt in high school. And unlike most of us, she kept herself an arm's distance away from the Glepkis after the accident. It took her nearly 20 years before she could speak freely with Pam. After Cole died, I had like some horrible survivor's guilt because he was my prom date and I felt like he should have been with me. And I still to this day can't explain why he isn't. Um, and it took me a really long time to even have a conversation with Pam about it. And she was always very welcoming to me. She always, but I always felt every time I saw her, I felt guilt. Like 
it's my fault her son's not here. Um, so that that was really difficult for me to kind of cultivate a relationship with Pam um, because of that. But I can remember just a few years ago, I had a conversation with her and explained to her that I do have this. Like, this is why it's hard for me to, like, open up and be um, close with you because I feel like it's my fault that your son's not here and I expected, like, I don't know why I expected her to have aim, something angry or something like that to say to me. And the only thing she said was, you cannot live like that, Denise. Like, you need to let that go and you need to live your life for them because they're not able to be here to live. And that was like a pinnacle changing point in my life. Like, I had gone probably... I don't know, 20 years with this guilt on my shoulders. I feel like after that happened, one day just randomly, I was like having a really bad day and just all up in my head. And and I lived an hour away from Nailsville, but for some reason I just decided I was going to go sit at their grave and just be there. And Pam showed up. Like, no reason they're there, you know, and she just like hugged me with this embrace. And I just felt like all these little pieces that I had fragmented myself had somehow come back together. Again, Pam. It can be difficult, but, you know, if it will help somebody along their way, you know how I am, Seth. I'm going to help somebody along their way, even if it's difficult for me, because life is not fair and it's not easy and it's it's not always, you know, uh, rainbows and, and unicorns. And it's that way for everybody. It's not just not that way for me. It's not that way for every single person that gets the opportunity to have life and breath. And in the 20 years that have passed, the only constant thing that remains are the feelings that Cole and Dylan left behind. While these are the feelings that tear us apart, they are the same things that can put us back together again. And as we move forward into the next 20, that's all we need to know. Even in the end, it seems like Pam can say, in a few words, what it took most of us 20 years to reach. I just feel super blessed that I got to be their mom. I'd like to dedicate this piece to Luella and Danny, each led a unique life. I wish one day to work with each family member to develop their own story. A special thanks to Blake, Fawn, Leah, Denise, and Daisy for being a part of this. For Mr. Smith for driving to Eau Claire to be interviewed. This project would not have been possible without the support of Pam, Amber, and Dan, who gave me their permission to start it. In 2019, Fawn married Dylan and Cole's younger brother, Kenny. I'd like to congratulate them on the birth of their daughter, Greta. And finally, Pam would like to thank Mr. Smith and the rest of the first responders who were there the night of the accident.